Beloved, our text this morning is from Ruth, chapter 1. Last time we considered the first five verses. Now we'll consider verses 6 through 14. And just to refresh our memories from last time, we were introduced to the characters of the book of Ruth. Elimelech taking his family to Moab away from the place of bread, from the house of bread in Bethlehem taking them to the place of spiritual compromise. You remember we saw that the sons of Elimelech and Naomi, Malon and Kilian, marry Moabite women, showing that they had compromised themselves spiritually. And then we see that slowly but surely Naomi is left to herself in the land of Moab. Her husband dies. Then her two sons die, and that's where we ended. The woman was left of her two sons and her husband. A sad history, to be sure. A history that is full of warning for ourselves. We saw the lack of leadership, the lack of a king. But now, As we come to our text this morning, we see things beginning to change. Things begin to turn as Naomi returns. And when we study Scripture, it's helpful to look for words that reoccur again and again, that repeat themselves, to look for key words. One of the key words of these verses in question this morning is the word return. So children, if your dad asks you at lunchtime, what was the sermon about? Remember this one word, return. This will help your discussion at the lunch table about what the sermon was about. Return. Think about what that means to return. As we see it pictured in the life of Naomi and also Ruth. The word return in the Hebrew language has this idea of repentance. Almost always in the Old Testament contains that idea of repentance. And repentance, of course, is turning away from sin and turning to God, doing a 180. And that's what we find Naomi doing in the land of Moab in our text. As the narrative of Ruth builds towards its climax and the coming Redeemer, this is a key word to understand and to to grasp this morning. The word return occurs 12 times in chapter 1, in verses 6 through 22. And so this signals to us that the word return is very, very important for understanding the book of Ruth. The central hinge upon which the purposes of God hinge for the redemption of His people. So on the one hand, we understand that God is sovereign in His grace. But this morning, we're going to come to a greater understanding of of man's responsibility in repentance and returning to God. And so this word return is the hinge upon which the purposes of God turns for the redemption of His people. Because if we don't return to God, there ultimately will be no redemption. It's through returning and repentance that God brings backsliders to Himself. That God brings sinners, we could say strangers, if we consider the life of Ruth. He brings them into the orbit of His grace. And it's through repentance that he keeps his children close to himself, close to the Redeemer. And so what better word to meditate upon this morning than the word return? It's my prayer this morning that this message will cause us to return to the Lord. And no matter what spiritual condition you are in this morning, 
the call comes to each one of us to return. Let's see how this word then operates in the lives of these three weeping widows. Our theme is rise and return. Rise and return. First of all, to the place of fullness. Rise and return to the place of fullness. We read that Naomi begins the return to the land of Judah from Moab in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Her arising and going was prompted by the message that the Lord had visited his people with bread in giving them bread. So Bethlehem now again is the house of bread. Before it was the place of famine and Elimelech left the place of famine to go to Moab to feed his family. But now Naomi had heard in the land, in the country of Moab that the Lord had given bread to his people again. He had visited them. As we consider the book of Ruth set in the time of the judges, we find that cycle of of God coming to his people again and again as his people repent. God comes to his people and he gives them bread again. He gives them reprieve and relief from the enemy all around them. Divine judgment and discipline is turned into, into, into divine blessing and fullness. Naomi here in this verse is in the place of emptiness. The place that had promised so much for her and her husband and her family is now void and meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. Void of promise. Naomi begins to turn from Moab. It's not all that it was cut out to be. The text is clear that she might return from the land, from the country of Moab. She's experienced its emptiness, the bitter fruit of being in the place of spiritual and moral compromise. And that raises the question, what what prompts her to leave the place of emptiness? As she lives in the far country of emptiness, of loss and pain, what is it that draws Naomi back to the land of Judah? The true land of promise where God is. As we read the text, we understand what it is that causes her to return. She heard. She heard that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. There are several things to note about this return of Naomi to the place of fullness. First, she hears about God's provision and responds to what she hears. Isn't that how repentance works in the heart of a sinner? It comes through hearing the the news of God's provision in Christ of the Lord coming to visit humanity in the flesh and of giving Himself as the bread of life for sinners to feed them. Hearing that. Faith comes through hearing, Paul says in Romans 10. Returning is a response to the good news of the Gospel. And notice who it is that provides this bread. It's the Lord. All in capital letters, the Lord. The eternal, faithful, covenant-keeping Yahweh or Jehovah. He once again hears the cries of His people by reason of the bondage that they were in from their enemies. And He responds in His grace. This is the pattern of grace. And the power of grace. And so what is the return of Naomi but a response to the goodness and grace of God? 
Isn't that how Paul describes repentance and return to the Lord in Romans 2 verse 4, that it's the very goodness of God that leads us to repentance. There has to be something that draws us from the emptiness of sin, isn't it? Because by ourselves we will not move from the place of spiritual famine, from the place of emptiness. There has to be something greater, something far better that draws us away from sin and it is the very goodness of God. It is God Himself. It is God visiting His people. It is God speaking to His people so that we hear the good news that the Lord visits His people. And it's this news that should keep us near to God and to the Savior, to the Redeemer. It is this that draws us to return to Him. There's nothing else in this world that has such drawing power to change a sinner's heart and to draw them back to return than the good news that God visits His people. That God is present. That God provides not just physical bread, but spiritual bread for His people. It is this that overpowers sin and the allure of sin. It is this that overpowers the emptiness of Moab so that a sinner finds rest in God Himself. You see how this operates. Not just in the life of a person who has never repented, for believers who are called to a life of repentance. Again and again, we're, we're pulled back, aren't we? Back to the, the land, the country of Moab, back to, to emptiness. Sin comes and offers a moment of pleasure. But God comes and He says, return to Me. Stay close to Me. Come back to Me, Sinner. And so Naomi sets off on the return to the land of Israel. In verse 7 we read, Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Naomi hears. She arises and returns back to the land of Judah. The contrast, be greater here. In verse 6, we read of the country of Moab, an inhospitable country, a country of the enemy, a country that promised everything but gave nothing. The word country indicating that this was a, a foreign place where Naomi did not belong. In verse 7, we read of the land of Judah. The word land reminds us Calls to mind the promised land, the covenant promise of God that He would bring His people to a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's a contrast here between country and land. The country of Moab and the land of Judah. The place of emptiness and the place of fullness. The place where God clearly was not in Moab. Contrast with the place where God clearly had visited His people. Even that phrase, His people, reminds us of God's covenant of grace with His people. That's the contrast that's set before you and me this morning. The place of emptiness and the place of fullness. The place where God is not and the place where God visits His people reminding us of the grace that is available for sinners. The world or God. Spiritual emptiness or spiritual fullness. We need to beware of this contrast and the choice it presents to us this morning. The one choice is fatal as we learn from Elimelech as he goes to Moab. He loses his own life and the life of his sons. The other one is fullness. 
And every day, we are faced with that contrast. In the thousands of little moments of life, where will you be found? Every choice that we make in life betrays or reveals where we are. The land of emptiness or the land of fullness. Where will you be found? The thanks be to God is to the place of fullness that the Lord calls you this morning. He invites you this morning through the life of Naomi and Ruth to come to Him. He says, open wide thy mouth and I will fill it. Psalm 81. Rise and return, the Lord says, to the place of fullness. Rise and return in spite of the plea of reason. It's our second thought this morning. Rise and return in spite of the plea of reason. Naomi arises. She speaks to her daughters-in-law. The three widows set out for Judah. Naomi pauses along the way, perhaps on the border of the land of Judah and the country of Moab. She stops and she pleads with her daughters-in-law to turn around and to go back in Moab, to go back to Moab in verses 8 and 9. Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. The very first words of Naomi are sad words. She's urging her daughters-in-law to return to their mother's house. As Naomi speaks it, in one sense, it's a test for the daughters-in-law as to what they were going to do with this choice that is before them. But on the, on the, on the, on the other hand, we learn a lot about Naomi. She's reasoning from, from a human perspective. She opens the case clearly for them. She has nothing for them, nothing to give them. She's reasoning with them from a human perspective, saying, your relationship with your mother is much stronger than with your mother-in-law. Go back to Moab. Go back to where you belong. She does acknowledge their loving and tender care for her and her two sons while they lived. She commits them to the Lord's care. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with me and with the dead. She wishes them the security and protection of finding rest in another husband. It is a clear and sensible case for these women to return to Moab. The case becomes even more sensible as she continues to reason with them in verse 11. Turn again. Return, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? She's pointing out the barrenness of her womb as a result of age and points out that it's hopeless for them to follow her because she has nothing left to give. In verse 12, she emphasizes the hopelessness, the futility of remarriage and childbearing in her old age. Turn again, or return, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they are grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Would you want them to wait until they're old enough to marry? Would you wait? She emphasizes that there's simply no heir. So these women could have children. It's impossible. Operating behind Naomi's 
instance, is the provision in the Old Testament law for something called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. Leveret is spelled L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Leveret. The word lever simply means brother or brother-in-law. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 6 states, If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the brother which is dead, that his name be not put out. This was God's provision for these widows to remarry one of the brothers of Malon and Killing, but there were no more brothers. This is the end of the road for them if they follow Naomi back. They would be strangers in the land of Israel. Naomi's age and lack of a husband prevent a timely heir for Ruth and Orpah. It's hopeless for them. And it's this principle that will come back as we proceed through the book of Ruth that will factor prominently in Boaz's redemption of Ruth and redeeming the land of being the heir that followed after Elimelech. And it's in the midst of this hopelessness end to the promise of a seed that Naomi counsels Ruth and Orpah to return not to the Lord but back to Moab it was the plea of reason back to Moab for its supposed promise of a husband and an heir and a future all these reasons stand in the way of Ruth and Orpah to return with Naomi to Judah And she's saying here, what's the point? Why are you following me to Judah when you can return to your mother's house? You can find a husband there. Will they be sensible? Though Naomi is well-meaning in her reasoning, her reasoning is ultimately faulty. All she sees is hopelessness, sterility, and no prospects for either of these women in Judah. Naomi is living in the realm of hopelessness right here. The realm of impossibility and human reason pleads with Ruth and Orpah to return. Some commentators say that Naomi's knowingly giving Ruth and Orpah a test here. As we see from the latter part of chapter 1, that doesn't necessarily hold true. From God's perspective, certainly it's a test, but not necessarily from where Naomi is reasoning from. She unwittingly urges them to return to the paganism of Moab with the blessing of the Lord. Maybe there's someone here living with such impossibility to return to the Lord this morning. You hear the gospel. You hear the invitation, and all you see is impossibility. What hope of of life? What hope of grace is there in the, the land of Judah? You counsel yourself, or your friends counsel you to return to Moab. It's easier there. It makes sense to return to the emptiness of Moab because the fullness of the Lord seems a step too far. An impossible reality. You look at yourself and all you see is a cold and and sterile heart. All you see is your own inability to return to the Lord Himself. But don't let human reasoning, don't let the reasoning of sin put you off. Don't let the reasoning of doubt put you off. Because God calls you this morning to return to Him 
in spite of such reasoning. The Lord stands above such reasoning. He comes with His power and He says, Come to me, sinner. Don't let your perspective and experience of God's providence and grace cloud the clarity of God's invitation this morning. Don't return to Moab no matter how how logical it seems, no matter how easy it seems, no matter how much you might have to give up in returning to the Lord. Listen to the logic of the gospel this morning and let that draw you to return to the Lord. Come and return my son and my daughter. Because the gospel takes the impossibilities that are before you and turns them, turns them into glorious realities and hope in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. You might not see it yet. But what you can't see doesn't take away from the fact that God can use your impossibilities and draw you to Himself so that you return to Him. In fact, that's exactly the place where God wants you to be. To see your own impossibilities. To see that it's hopeless from your side. And that's only when you return to Him there is hope in life in Christ. So rise and return in spite of the plea of the reasoning of sin and human reasoning. Thirdly, you are called and I, are, I am called to rise and return in the midst of the pain of providence. Yes, return in the midst of the pain of providence. So what Naomi's words underscore is the three weeping widows stand at the crossroads. In verse 13b, she states, For it grieveth me much for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi here teaches us much about the experience of God's providence in the lives of his children. On the one hand, she hears of the Lord visiting His people and giving them bread. The goodness of God draws her back to the land of Judah because of the good news. But on the other hand, she struggles mightily with God's providence in her own personal and family life. She struggles to see the goodness of God in the midst of her suffering. She stands before the mystery of God's providence and confesses the bitterness of her soul. This bitterness will be voiced again in her name change in verse 21. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, the Almighty hath afflicted me. She believes in the providence of God. But she sees no hope for herself in that providence. So there's this drawing power on the one hand, and yet there's, as she's trying to deal with the providence of God in, in real time, she's, she's struggling. That can be a familiar experience, can't it? In the lives of God's children. Not denying the goodness of God, and yet struggling with the very providence of God in our lives. As we come to terms with the goodness of God in the midst of the hard things of life. Perhaps in your own life now, some of you are experiencing the hard providence of God. Pain, sickness, sorrow, death, rebellious children, people letting you down. You stand before that mystery of God's providence and you wonder where the good is. Your knowledge hasn't yet translated into experience because you know the Lord is good. You don't doubt that. But your experience is one of bitterness. Maybe you're a young person struggling with, God, with what God is doing in your life. 
Questions arise in your mind and you question God's goodness. Maybe you're angry at God for certain things. Why did you make me this way? Why is life so hard at times? Perhaps you're one in whose life loved ones are suffering greatly. Children, perhaps, or elderly parents are suffering intensely, or your own spouse. You know the right answers. But the right answers are having a hard time gaining traction in your life to regain perspective that the Lord is indeed good. You become hopeless for yourself. Perhaps even those niggling doubts begin to set in and you say, is God really good? So on one hand, you're being drawn to return, and yet there's that repelling force of, of the bitterness of God's providence. You can't, you can't mesh those two things. You see suffering and hopelessness and injustice. And you say with Naomi, the Lord's hand has is, is gone out against me. And yet God is above it all. God is above that providence of, of Naomi's life. In the midst of that painful providence of, of losing her husband, of losing her sons, of, of losing everything in the land of Moab, God is calling Naomi back to Himself and His redeeming purposes. God will not leave her there in the midst of that bitterness of providence. And that's the good news of the gospel as well, isn't it? God doesn't leave you there if that's where you are this morning. It's in the midst of the impossibility and pain and hopelessness that the Lord draws and He works in spite of the state of our minds and hearts in the moment. These words, Naomi teaches us how not to deal with providence and to return to the Lord in the midst of the pain of providence. It shows us in one sense that the struggle is real. But on the other hand, it's calling us back to return to the Lord's goodness, to what we know is true, and, and let that transform our perspective in the midst of hard providence. Back to the Lord's goodness. Back to the Lord's faithfulness. Back to the Lord's fullness. To draw deeply from the wells of salvation and to know that the Lord is good. And to say that in those moments, to preach that truth to ourselves, Lord, you are good. There is none who is good but you. To whom else can we go in these moments of, of pain, of suffering, of trial, but to you again? And so we return. Because it's at your feet that we learn to be silent, to be like a child. Not to exercise ourselves in things that are too high for us, but to submit, to be content. Certainly to use the means that God has given us to be content in the Lord's providence. Not to become bitter, but to be drawn again by the goodness of God back to Himself, back to peace in Christ. My friend, come. Come and let us return to the Lord in the midst of the pain of providence. Because we see that in the end, Naomi's life, this is the best place to be. It might take time. It might take time as we see it unfold in the book of Ruth. But when we get to the point of submission, there's a sense of excitement even, a sense of joy that what God is doing is good and right for our good and for His glory. And we might not ever see that, but we can rest assured that when our faith is securely anchored in God, that this is what He's doing. And the words of Cowper's hymn, Cowper's hymn 
ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds which ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes shall ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Return. Return to the Lord where there is life, where there is renewed perspective. Don't let providence cloud your view of the goodness of God. But let providence lead you to see the goodness of God. And finally, all to rise and return in spite of parting to Moab. As the women weep, it's interesting to make a comparison of their tears, and we don't want to delve into mysticism here. But the fact of their tears tells us something about where their hearts are. All three of them weep at the prospect of parting. For Naomi, there are tears of bitterness as she recalls the loss of husband and sons and potentially now the loss of her daughters-in-law. She'd experienced their kindness, their compassion, their love on a human relationship level. This was a a, a bitter parting for Naomi. If her daughters-in-law would go back to Moab, she'd be left utterly alone. No heir, no one to redeem her. She'd go back in poverty as a widow, not even sure if she would be able to, to receive the help that Israel would provide for in the, uh, that God had provided for Israel in the law. Doesn't have much prospect. Tears of bitterness. It's to be the Lord's afflicting her. Ruth's tears are tears of hope and futility all mixed together. If we take her confession of the verses that follow in verses 16 and 17 and the prospect of parting from the only link of hope for her soul. These are tears of both hope and frustration. Hope because she's tied to the God of Israel. But frustration that that Naomi is wanting to send her back to Moab. For Orpah, they are tears of loss. The loss of her mother-in-law. Sorrow of saying goodbye to someone she genuinely loved. But not tears ultimately that lead to a genuine return to the Lord. She had at first determined to return. She'd started out well, but then when human reason began to emerge, it made sense to return to Moab after all. These two sorrows of Ruth and Orpah are contrasted in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Ruth's tears, we could say evidence the sorrow of a true return to the Lord. She's committed to go all the way in returning. But Orpah's tears are not tears of genuine return to the Lord. The tears that evidence the sorrow of parting with someone that she loved. Her tears are coupled with a kiss. Orpah's kiss is also telling. As she weeps, she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. Her kiss and her departure 
is symptomatic of a heart still in Moab. It's a heart that has chosen for emptiness rather than fullness. She counts the cost as Naomi pleads with her. She turns back on God's fullness and turns to Moab's gods, as verse 15 will tell us next time. And so here's the choice again. The God of fullness or the God's of emptiness. On the one hand, you can't fault Orpah if you look at it from a human perspective. There's nothing for her in in Judah on a human level. Naomi was right. But human reason doesn't always have the same logic as gospel reason. The lure and attraction of Moab might jive very well with human reasoning. And for us, it would go something like this. Think of that career you could have. Think of the increase in money. Might mean sacrificing a church or family or fellowship. Moving away. But we see here a thousand little moments a thousand little choices of life will all rape an eternal destiny. What we have here is Orpah literally kissing redemption goodbye and walking across the border back into Moab. She too returns, but not to God. As she enters into Moab, we never hear of her again. That ought to tell us something about the choice that is set before us. Are you there this morning? Are you ready to kiss fullness, redemption, goodbye for the emptiness of the world that is Moab? Maybe you're counting the cost on a human level. Seems reasonable to go back to Moab no matter what the gospel says. You're ready to throw it all away. There's pe- there are people that do that. There are young people that do that. For whatever reason, they look at the life in the world and they say, that seems far more attractive than the upbringing I've received. They kiss redemption goodbye And they blindly go into Moab. Beware of such thinking. Beware of kissing redemption goodbye and going back to Moab. Human reasoning in light of eternity. You know the end, I trust, of the book of Ruth. A beautiful ending of redemption. A fullness of life. The Lord pleads with you through the preaching of the gospel this morning to return to Him. To heed the invitation from Isaiah 30, verse 15 In returning and rest, you shall be saved. The promise of life, of salvation. When you return, Immediately after those words of Isaiah 30, verse 15, we read these words, but ye would not. In returning and rest ye shall be saved, but ye would not. That's what was before Orpah on that day. That's what's before you this morning. Where will you turn? You're sitting here right now hearing the Word of God, the choice sets starkly before you, a contrast. Don't return to Moab. Don't return to Moab. Return to the Lord 
God who made you, the God who desires to redeem you, the God who calls you to return to him, to return to him in spite of witnessing Orpah returning to Moab. In fact, her life stands as a warning sign, shining brightly, saying, do not turn here. The end of this road is death. The Lord calls you to return with Ruth, with the persistence of commitment, as we see in our last thought. Her commitment to her mother-in-law, more importantly to the hope of redemption, to the Lord who had redeemed her, shines through. She too determines with Orpah to return with, with, with Naomi at first in verse 10. Surely we will return unto thy people. Her commitment is sincere and genuine and intentional as her confession points out in 16 and 17. In verse 14, she weeps again, but we read these beautiful words, but Ruth clave unto her. She persists in her commitment to return to the land of Judah where the Lord had visited his people. Like Naomi, she returns because the goodness of God is drawing her. She persists in caring for her mother-in-law. She, she sees through Naomi's human reasoning and she, she will confess the logic of the gospel over against this reasoning. She, she cleaves to Naomi. It's fascinating, this word cleave. It's the same word used in Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. It's a word that indicates the close connection between a husband and wife in marriage. Ruth cleaving to Naomi. Speaking of that marriage to come with, with Boaz, already indicating a word of hope for Ruth. She's glued to Naomi. That's where her prospects are. And not just to Naomi, but the God of Naomi. She clings with persistence and commitment, anticipating this future marriage of redemption. Ruth is glued for better or worse to her mother-in-law. She does not, not, she does not know what's coming in Judah. But she claved to Naomi. She'll likely be treated as an outcast, but she claved to Naomi anyway. She would have had no prospects that she knew of for a husband, yet she claved to Naomi. Her only hope of redemption tied to her return to the land of Judah. Is this how you will return to the Lord with this persistence of commitment, clinging in marriage, as it were, to Christ himself and returning to the land of fullness and promise. Because Ruth's cleaving to Naomi indicates her choice to go with Naomi. As we'll see in the next verses, it indicates much more. Indicates her hope in the Lord. Is that true for you this morning? Returning to the Lord, clinging to Him because He alone is good. Will you demonstrate this commitment and back it up with a Ruth-like confession of hoping in the God of redemption, the God of impossibilities? Here we have evidence that the Lord is worthy to be cleaved to with a marriage-like tenacity. Cleave. No matter what happens, I will cling to the one that has bought me with his precious blood. I will not leave his side. 
But he, because he will cleave to me out of his grace and mercy. He will prove to be a faithful redeemer and provider. No matter what the future holds, he draws me to himself again this morning. Only don't return to Moab. Return to the Lord. Return to his fullness. Return to the land, to the place of promise where there is bread and enough to spare. Room for prodigals. Room for strangers. Room for sinners. Room for backsliders. There's no better resolve that you and I can have this morning than to return to God. To cleave to Him and find in Him everything that we need. So I ask you this morning, where are you? In relation to this contrast that has been set before you, will you return to the Lord? Or will you turn back to the world? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank Thee for Thy Word, for the gracious invitation of the gospel for sinners to come and to return. For Thou hast provided all things in Thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard of Him again, our gracious Redeemer, the one who draws graciously, powerfully, patiently, again, or for the first time. Lord, help us to respond in faith. Grant thy spirit then to take this word, to bring it home with power even now, to change hearts, to cause, to return, and to cleave. We ask all this, Lord, asking Thee to give us the grace, the strength to shut out all human reasoning, to still those voices of the world and of the devil and of the flesh, to hear the voice of the Son of God and live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.